Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here once again with Swati Martin. Now, you're from a Francophone background. Swati, how do you say your name accurately? Yeah, Swati Martin. My right. father is American, so oh, okay. <laughs> the way my name is, is spelled is uh, just to be sure that Anglophones would, would uh, pronounce it properly. So, um, yeah, see. and my last name is, is uh, from an American father. Okay. Um, so anyway, I know you from this event that you put on about a year ago, Tonche. Yeah, Tonche. That's a Yoruba Tunche. from Nigeria word, Tonche, oh. yes. and it means the shift. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that was like a pretty high energy event. And since then, um, like both of us, we had a bookmark to um, collaborate or stay in touch. And so here we are. Uh, it seems... Like every time I talk to you, you're somewhere else. You were in Ivory Coast. Now you're in South Africa. Um, you used to be a corporate executive. So how do all those, th- like what happened to you <laughs> that brings all these things together? Um, is it something about your childhood where you grew up? Like, how did you get on this path? Well, you know, I'd, I I believe that we're all all of these things, and um, I, I feel fortunate enough to have ex- been exploring and embodying all these various facets of who I am. But I think who we all are. So you know, there's not like a, a difference between really a business person or an entrepreneur, like a corporate person or an entrepreneur or a so-called spiritual person and a non-spiritual person, because we're actually all of that. And uh, and actually, I've, I've always embodied differences. And that's something that's been very characteristic to who I am. And, and my friends were always a little bit puzzled of how, you know, you could you know, listening to hip hop, dancing on a table and then spending a week in a monastery in silence as a teenager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like, who are you? But actually who I am is what we all are. It's just that we're kind of sometimes not allowing ourselves to embody all these different facets. Mm-hmm. The way I explain that, and maybe that's not the real explanation because these things also evolve, but I think maybe um, today that's you know how I would explain mm-hmm. it. And in terms of upbringing, um, you know, it's funny enough when, you know, now I was just 
sharing my name as an American name, but my name is not even my last name, <laughs> really. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my, my father was a, a Black Panther Party leader, and he was a member of the uh, Black Liberation Army. And so uh, I did grow, grow up in that uh, very revolutionary, you know, kind of background. Uh, and that has been very vivid. So that's on my father's side, uh, who left, uh, basically, you know, fled the US really. And I can talk about that because he's passed away now, but uh, he was uh, on a wanted list uh, wow. all, all his life. Yeah. So I, I grew up with that, um, you know, kind of that awareness that my story is is very private and anything could happen anytime and my father could be arrested and fetch and sent back to the US etc uh, but at the same time uh, I think especially in in this time I realized how important uh, this um, story is is that I never really bought into anything mainstream because as a child, uh, I, I already could not comprehend that uh, my father who was actually fighting for black people's right would be considered as an enemy of state and would basically live as a fugitive his entire life. Mm -hmm. And and us with that as his children, as a, a, a fear that he could be arrested anytime and, you know, spend a life in jail or die for something that actually was was good for me as a, you know, as a black woman child. Um, and so so I grew up with that. And then uh, obviously you, you add that to an upbringing in, in West Africa where we had all these coups and, um, you know, all the history that that. Um, uh, we know as Africans and some others know that's not necessarily widely known, but, uh, you know, uh, this kind of interference of the West, uh, IMF, World Bank structural adjustments that have, you know, led to a lot of disasters in Africa, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you, you add, <laughs> I think this is the context of, of my upbringing. So you're, you basically grow up very aware, like quickly, like you're, you're not living in La La Land. You're kind of very sober in a way about the world, uh, the deception and so on. And mm -hmm. I've, I've experienced myself a coup, a, two coups, as a matter of fact, because when I was born, we lived in Liberia and we did have to escape uh, Liberia when there was uh, the coup in uh, 1980, and uh, and that also you know as as a child and and uh, makes you think about the world you know what is important uh, specifically your relationship to material things uh, and so on and and I think that was also pretty central you know to kind of um, you know build a non attachment to to things and also freedom I think you know you were. Uh, saying, you know, I kind of move also, that's something that's, you know, also very characteristic of my being is that I just move. Uh, and, and freedom for me is, is paramount. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, this makes sense. Because, you know, you and I have talked about kind of COVID stuff. And one of the reasons I feel connected to you is that you don't have much of a buy-in to the standard operating narratives of this civilization. So it kind of makes sense that if your father, who you knew as a good and caring and brave man was treated like a criminal, you cannot fully buy into a system 
that yeah. treats him as a criminal. It's yeah. it's quite similar to people in the psychedelic space that I know, like mm -hmm. who have been doing healing work for decades that has been criminalized. Like, yeah, you're not going to have a lot of trust in the system that turns good into bad and bad into good. Yeah, um, and I think I think it's a it's also a combination <laughs> of two. It's it's that, uh, and again, you know, it's it's my direct experience because it's one thing to have a, a father and and look at a, a father with the eye eyes of a child, and you could say, well, you know, this was this could as have been like your romantic idea of right. your father, um, which I I don't think it is, but but you know, there there is a part of that, but there is another part which is my own experience, uh, growing up in West Africa, and experiencing the interference of you know big corporations uh into the politics of 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 the country you know the economic hitman uh mm -hmm. for someone like me is not a book <laughs> you uh -huh. know this 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 is basically what you experience you know you think you 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 know literally growing up in in ivory coast i felt like i grew up in paradise and overnight you know this place turns into hell and i think what people are experiencing today at a global level you know, many of us have experienced th that at a national level in, you know, in some of the so-called, um, you know, developing countries, you know, all yeah. these countries with resources, we've been the battlefield for uh, the greed of corporations, of the hypocrisy of Western governments and so on. And, you know, and also our own governments, the greed of our own governments and own people. So my upbringing is very much in this kind of politicized environment and also firsthand experience of, well, you know, I'm watching this, this news, but, and I'm here in Ivory Coast and actually what I'm seeing on TV is not what's happening in the country. And as a matter of fact, as a teenager, I, I used to protest in the streets and uh, with, with some friends, we had set up an organization actually to go against the media propaganda mm. uh, that was happening, you know, from the West telling a story of Ivory Coast that, that was basically leading our country into a political crisis and a war. And we wanted to avoid that. And, and I'm talking, you know, this is me as a teenager. Uh, me as a teenager as well in first first year of university, the genocide in Rwanda, <laughs> you know, we mm -hmm. were protesting, seeing how uh, governments were silent when, you know, our brothers and sisters in Rwanda were being murdered. So, you know, I, I feel like there's never been a stop of these things. The only thing is that it never happened at the global stage and it always happened, you know, in the Middle East in Africa, in Southeast Asia, but these never happened really in the West. And now we're kind of in this giant uh, battlefield, which is really a spiritual warfare in, in this case, because it's just beyond, you know, it's all of what I've explained and, yeah. you know, magnifying with some other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so th these are some really, I would love to tie these threads together and maybe to help do that. I'm not sure if my listeners are actually all that familiar with the mechanics of global debt, development, ideology, economic imperialism, and colonialism. Because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, development for the third world, that's good because we're going to help them, you know, we're going to lift them out of poverty. Uh, what it actually means is, oh, here are societies that are still 
in some way self-sufficient and they could be converted into sources of raw materials and labor for the global market. So growing up in Ivory Coast, was it like pretty obvious what was happening and most people knew it or was it only the politically aware that had a good idea of what was actually happening to the country? Or maybe you can well, share I mean, like how, how you became aware of it and like just give us maybe a, an example to illustrate. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, things, things evolved basically because, you know, the, our nations were fairly newly independent, you know, in the 1960s, that's when most of African countries got their independence. So that's not so long ago. So after that, you know, you kind of had a period of, you know, um, emancipation from uh, the, the colonizer. And so a lot of those things we were aware of because I think uh, even as, as, as a child, you know, we're also taught the history and understanding what were some of the, the deals that were passed for our countries to have independence. And already these seem to be unfair. Still, you're kind of okay. We have peace. Life is great. You know, uh, these things are happening in the background, but you kind of still have this sense of I'm growing in this amazing place. Uh, and, and literally, I had the feeling I grew up in paradise. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was never, you know, I'm, I'm half French and my mom is half French. I would, you know, go to Europe for the holidays and so on. I was never impressed like by the West because I, I felt like, I mean, I live in paradise, not even impressed. And, uh, and you know, life goes and you see things are, are creeping. So we discover more uh, natural resources and oil. And basically, you know, I would say things started really going down in Ivory Coast when uh, it was very clear that the country had oil. We already had a lot of different resources. And then we had a, a, a president that was, uh, you know, kind of more, I would say, nationalistic in the sense of, okay, let's review all these agreements that uh, happen. And, and basically, that's the moment where all of a sudden, you find that students are armed to the rim and create a rebellion. So the first question, even, you know, as the simplest person and 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 as as a teenager you're questioning well you know i'm at the university all the time we hang out you go to these parties and also some of these students actually of the student association you kind of seen them before how all of a sudden these students are armed to the rim and able to create a full rebellion with you know, and we know how much, you know, uh, weapons cost. So how, where did they even get the money? And this, for example, is a question to this day. And, you know, the stuff I'm talking about started in like the early 90s. To this day, this question was never raised. And so, you know, you start questioning. And obviously, you know, being in an environment in a household where we question everything, you're like, okay, so who funded these people? Um, okay, the narrative that's being told, so there was a, a story that was being told that was not even true. Uh, the Western media was portraying uh, the, the crisis in Ivory Coast as a religious, a religious war between the, the supposedly Muslim North and the Christian South, knowing that in Ivory Coast, 80% of people are animists. <laughs> you know, so that's actually the first thing. And then people are either Muslim or Christian, but they're first, first animist. And so you're like, okay, this is a country where, where actually 
you know, more than 40% of the population is non-Ivorian because the president, the first president had politics of getting people from all over to bring the country. Lots of households are mixed, Christians, Muslim, whatever. So this is your experience and you're reading literally blatant lies, um, you know, on, on media, watching Western media, of course, and you're like, okay, this, this actually is just not true. So what are, you know, just the examples is that this was not even very uh, sophisticated lies, you know, as, as a person living in the country, you could basically just see that this was not true. Uh, and also start start to question. And then, you know, a lot of different things happened. Uh, the country was divided in two and uh, uh, France, basically the French army just uh, uh, maintained the separation. So like, why? <laughs> why would you yeah. actually interfere? Yeah. And so on. You know, other places, and I'm giving the, the example of Ivory Coast, but if you take uh, countries like Niger, where Arriva uh, gets most of their uranium, and France is a country where 90% of the, uh, the energy is nuclear, um, and and Niger has been in a war and in uh, political instability forever. Yeah. I mean, if you tr if you travel to the Middle East, and as as you know, this year I also spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I spent about four months, I think, this year in the Middle East, and most of my friends are from the region. And it's actually terrible to meet people who've never actually known peace in their life. I mean, there are countries like people from Yemen and other places, like they've never actually known peace ever. And yeah. all these wars that are happening outside uh, are basically what is allowing the Western nations to live. You know, for me, when I land in the U.S. and I see, you know, the number of cars, the 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 abundance of everything, I literally think there's no way for for our countries with natural resources to actually get out of where we are until this uh, uber uh, consumerist societies are maintained. There's mm -hmm. just no way. Yeah. You know? So the usual, you mentioned economic hitmen. The, so the usual playbook is that international banks uh, and agencies offer development loans to a place like Ivory Coast. And if they resist, or try to even get too good a deal, then the pressure comes on. The pressure could be on the elites. Hey, accept this deal and you can you know, siphon off some of it for yourself. The pressure can be, well, if you don't say yes, we're gonna regime change you. We're gonna arm students to rebel. Uh, we're gonna bomb you. We're gonna invade. The CIA is gonna fund your opposition, et cetera, et cetera. So if you don't say yes, then soon there'll be a government that will, uh, that is, corrupt and the elites get to, to become wealthy. So, and, and, and this is what allows countries like Ivory Coast or Niger or, or you know, Bolivia or whatever to stay poor because once they take those development loans, for one thing, most of the money actually goes to foreign corporations to build the development projects. But the interest on those loans is owed by the country. And because it's in hard currency, can only be paid through exports of those natural resources that end up in our automobiles, uh, you know, the metals, the oil, and also the, the export of labor, either, like either in the form of the young people physically are exported, that's called migration, 
or you set up, set up maculadora type factories where the products of the labor are exported. So that this is like kind of the big picture here. Yeah. And and do you think so? Maybe I don't want to linger on this too long, but um, like you have quite a you know highly developed political consciousness. Do you think that people in the places where you have been understand this? Because when I went, like I was in South Africa a few years ago. And people were like, you know, don't tell us not to develop. You know, we want to develop. Like, it seemed like they had fully accepted the narrative of development, the neoliberal paradigm. Is that changing? Like, like give me some lay of the land here. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what, what I see, and it's really interesting because I was, I was thinking about it um, yesterday, as a matter of fact. And uh, I was like, what has happened to us? What has happened to me? I, I then was questioning to, to answer your question, what happened to all my friends, you know, because I was not the only one manifesting and, you know, it was a lot of us, what happened? And, uh, and a lot of them are just, you know, fully embedded in the system, um, you know, fully embedded in the system. And I think what has happened is that the elites of the, the, the African elites, definitely what I would say, you know, in terms of, of thinkers, I'm not talking about, um, you know, people with money because it's a different uh, thing. For me, what I consider the change makers, a lot of the change makers, you know, have been in a way um, conditioned so of course you know you're super smart you're you're a, you're a change maker and okay let's get you to go to the um, London School of Economics exactly you, you went to those places though somehow that didn't exactly. work exactly exactly and then the next thing you know is like okay you have all these you know all these super degrees from Ivy League schools and then you get into a, a corporation. And, you know, by the time you start rising in the corporation and, and you know, you're comfortable, etc. And uh, I followed that path. But even inside inside that path, I was still, you know, not functioning. I remember when I started uh, my career at General Electric, my first job out of university, my boss literally told me after two weeks, he's like, Swati, how are we going to manage you? <laughs> It's like, uh, how are we going to manage you? I don't know how this is going to work. Uh, but I did stay 12 years and I was also, I was very lucky that, um, you know, um, I, 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 I didn't really care. Literally, I remember one day saying to, uh, to a big uh, executive uh, that they should be building uh, a factory in Africa. And anyway, he started shouting at me and I said, you know, I honestly don't care. I can be fired. I, I have no attachment to even this job because I'm not doing this for you. I, I, I don't care. But what, what I'm saying is that if you're going to be uh, benefiting from Africa, you have to also be building factories and doing transfer knowledge because, you know, that's the way to do and not just sell, you know, the, the least of the products. So anyway, screamed and later on, they did build a factory, not less than a couple of years later, but anyway, it was going that direction. And uh, what, I, what I found though, is that, you know, there are good people everywhere, as you all, you know, often say actually in your, in, in your um, messages is that, you know, people are not necessarily, they're evil people, but, but, you know, the majority of people are not evil. And I think sometimes it's just ignorance. Sometimes it's not really 
you know, the, the thought process has not gone that way so far to understand how, how things can truly be a win-win. And so what I, what I find is that it does take courage and uh, even within those organizations to fight. And, um, and, and that's one thing I can say, you know, even my, my leadership uh, that was consistent said, well, you know, this girl is fearless. And one of the executives said actually for one uh, promotion uh, that people were contesting, they're like, okay, this girl is really young. Like, how do you want to give her this really, really big job? And the guy was like a, one of the senior executives, uh, actually one of the CEOs at GE said, I mean, listen, I've never seen someone who has such a strong faith. It seems like this girl is fearless. So if you're going to give someone a very difficult job uh, that has not been done before, it's probably the best person, even though she doesn't have the professional experience. And I think that uh, my experience is that I always say, and everyone who knows me, my boss, I, I do like this, but maybe God is everywhere, but my boss is God. So, uh, and, I, and I move in the world like that. Um, there's no CEO, there's no president, there's no one who's my boss. So even in a corporation, I, you know, I don't really work for GE. So I, I'm there like this. And that was my attitude. And I think you then can make change inside, um, you know, these corporations. Mm -hmm. And to come back, what I find um, is that a lot of people don't really have the courage to fight um, because we then get scared because, you know, maybe we'll lose the job and then we, how are we going to pay the mortgage on the house? How are we going to buy the nice car? How are we going to get the recognition uh, and the stature and, and all of that. So we get attached to all these things. And in the end, you know, it, it just corrupts our, our willingness to, and our courage to actually stand for what is truly right. What, what are, inner alignment says it's, it's right uh, but 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 I find it's, it's be becoming really difficult uh, even have engaging not difficult in the sense of, of um, having the conversations but I can see that people are 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 just turning a blind eye you know and mm -hmm. and and that is the challenge that we're facing right now is a lot of things that are not acceptable. And, and people are just justifying it because uh, it, it, it means, it will mean putting them out of their comfort and they don't want. But what people don't realize is that in any case, they're going to be put out of their comfort. It's coming. It's happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Two, two, two things coming up at once. And maybe you just want to bookmark this. Uh, you know, you speak of courage, and it brings up to me the question, okay, where does courage come from? How, what has to change for people to discover their innate courage? Because we certainly can't say, oh, you know, you wussy or you're, you coward and shame them into courage. I don't think that's where courage comes from. So where does it come from in your experience, maybe your own life, or maybe you've witnessed people who are very courageous what brings a person to a point of courage? Well, I think there's two things. Um, you know, my father used to say, uh, he used to say, although he was not born African, but he, he did say, when you're born, so when you're born African, you, you have, you're born with a responsibility. And uh, that is something that, um, you know, that, that, was, that was what 
we were given is that this life of yours is not for your own enjoyment. Uh, it is, it comes with a responsibility. And, you know, I'm very privileged in the sense that, you know, I went to the best schools, private schools, I traveled the world, I had an incredible family, loving parents, you know, I, I literally experienced no trauma. Uh, you know, I'm very, very privileged, which is not the story of most people. And I was always very aware of my privilege, just, just that, you know, just especially growing up in Africa and ha having something to eat every day and, and having all these comforts and you just, you know, people working in your house, your maids or so, you know, you just see around, you don't, you, you know, you're not, you're not like living, you know, in La La Land, you're just saying, okay, Swati, you, you, you have that. It's not given to everyone. And I never took it for granted. I never believed that um, I had privilege because I was doing anything special or because I was anyone special. I believe that I had, I had been given privilege because I was going to use that privilege. And so that is the responsibility is always thinking if I don't do it with everything that I've been blessed with, if me, I don't do it. I mean, well, it's a, it's a shame to me, you know, it's a mm -hmm. shame to me. And so, so I think it's that responsibility. I believe I'm my brother's keeper and that's, that's really how I was, you know, that's what's been in me. I am my brother's keeper. And with that, what do I need to do every day to be my brother's keeper? And my brother's keeper right now means what are we doing for the next generations? Because I think that's really, uh, you know, what is I feel under attack uh, yeah, is, so is the next, next generation. Because you were saying before that um, what you witnessed in your youth happening in West Africa is now happening globally. Mm -hmm. and and that but we yes. were we were marching we were marching we're saying no i don't see the youth you know i don't see the teenagers in the streets i see them on tiktok and social media and posing and all you know i, I don't see and i and i and i see it in my own family uh, you know the teenagers in my family they're kind of literally you know oblivious to what's going on there's such a i find you know some kind of immaturity uh, uh the 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 teenage teenagers right now are much more immature than you know immature i would say in in their perception of the world in, in in on one side they know a lot of things and they're very aware because a lot of information is there and they can have you know discuss certain topics but i find uh immature in their in their showing up in the world and the realization mm -hmm. of what, what do I mean? What, what does my presence in this world mean? What am I contributing? You know, and, and that uh, I don't find with many teenagers because we don't see them in the streets. Um, you know, those, those, those uh, bills that are even being discussed, uh, these things that are happening, um, I find in, in, in those years, people were not accepting it uh, and, and the generations before. And so that's also what I say to some of my peers now is that I said, you know, sometimes people are like, okay, you know, I'm scared. And I said, there's nothing to be scared of because first of all, we chose to incarnate in this time. So we're made for these times. 
We're made for these times. So that is the knowing. And then secondly, there have been people before us who, who went through similar things. And we know that, um, you know, eventually the, the light will come through now. You know, it, it could be very rocky or, you know, let's, we don't know how rocky it's going to be in the process. But we are even here, you and I having this conversation um, because others fought for that. Uh, and that's also mm -hmm. our time now. What are we fighting for? And I think this is this is the cyclical nature of you know human humanity and human history and our own mm -hmm. you know spiritual development as a conscious collective is that we have to go through these hiccups and awakenings and everyone has to contribute. So it is our contribution, and the 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 comforts were just an illusion. And uh, mm -hmm. you did mention this, um, you know, also in, in uh, I think, your latest uh, write-up uh, where, you know, now it's for everyone to see what people thought was, was happening, has always been happening, is just now is just mm -hmm. a reveal. And uh, what are we going to do with that? So, mm -hmm. so, so it's, you know, I, I don't think it's like turning away. I think it's okay. I, I feel it's okay to say, well, I'm seeing what's happening. It's not right, but I don't know what to do. I'd rather mm -hmm. people, you know, I would encourage people to say that is that I feel powerless. I feel helpless. I know it's not right, but I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I think this, this truth is necessary versus justifying you know that is not right but you're finding a loophole to say well uh yeah, well people who uh, don't get vaccinated are selfish well i mean what does that have to do with um you know human rights and human sovereignty and freedom of speech and uh etc etc mm -hmm. you know so we're, we're using these pre um manufactured opinions and then you basically go and shop online for you know the narrative and you just take the one that is convenient so you don't have to think so much. Uh, and we just have to get back to a point where, wow, I'm feel, feeling overwhelmed. You know, this is a lot. I don't know what to do. I'm already depressed. I'm tired. I'm overworked. Uh, I'm dealing with my own stuff. And I don't know how to do with, with this reality. That's what yeah. we, we, that's we a, need. We need that truth. That's a potent state. Uh, I, I call it the space between stories. It's a lot mm -hmm. better to admit to acknowledge that you don't know what to do than to pretend that you do know what to do but actually not know what to do mm -hmm. um my friend have you met interacted with bio komalafe no but you recommended his book yeah, and yeah. i read it yeah oh yeah it's amazing he, yeah i can introduce you someday he, he likes to quote a nigerian a yoruba proverb uh which is in order to find your way you must first get lost and I really think that that is good advice for our whole civilization right now. Having been so sure that we knew the way and how to get there. And as a result, having gotten lost, but not admitting that you're lost. I think that's really the essence of the proverb is like what you were describing, the, the humility, like the openness, like, okay, I'm lost. Now what? Because only then do you even look for a different way. Yes. And, and, you know, I think that, that one topic I've visited over the last, well, for a long time, but especially over the last couple of years is this kind of epistemic imperialism that where, where 
the West and its institutions of knowledge production, especially science, say, okay, here's what reality is, here's how to know about reality, and we're going to bring everybody else into our knowledge structures. Whereas, and especially when it comes to disease and what to do about it, it obliterates like so many other systems of knowledge uh, about healing and about health and other priorities, like ideas of how to live. So, and I've run into some, you know, quite a lot of pushback here where people say, Charles, by questioning the COVID narrative and questioning vaccines and opposing mandates, you're being a white supremacist because um, COVID is killing more people of color than white people. So you're, you know, you're calling for the disproportionate death of people of color. Now it's actually not true if you include Africa, actually fewer people of color are, I mean, you know, globally. Um, But I'm I'm curious, you know, as as an African, what would you say to, to the charge that questioning COVID orthodoxy is white supremacy? Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting you mentioned that because as a matter of fact, one of your uh, essays um, some time back, I sent to an African-American friend and the response to that was exactly that. And she sent me an article uh, showing that, uh, you know, well, it's easy for your friend to write that. Look at what's happening to African-Americans. Well, I mean, luckily, I have to say where I, I, I feel in a, again, in a position of privilege is that I am European from my mom and West African. And for my dad, I'm also uh, African-American and European. So, you know, and I leave, uh, I leave, um, you know, my main base is in Asia. So I literally living across these communities and I'm also embodying those things inside of me. Two of my great grandfathers were colonialists, so so you know I'm both I'm, I'm, I'm everything. And on the other side, uh, one of my great grandfather was a slave. So I I have like literally all of these histories inside of me. I carry them in my DNA. So and I'm very aware of that. I'm not choosing one over the other, you know, because that's what we you know we have to embrace all these stories within ourselves. Uh, what I find um, on the, the African-American side is that everything has been racialized in the U.S. for some reason. Um, but now every topic is uh, seen under the lens of race. So, so again, you know, it's a polarization of society. Um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to engage even in this debate and this conversation uh, with my friend, as a matter of fact, I didn't even engage because people are hurt. You know, what's happening is that people are walking open wounded. We live in a society, in a world where people are basically walking out open wounded. And so we, we don't have the time to engage with the wounds of each of one another. And, and then basically what, what's happening is that all this polarization and so even in these uh, conversations on, uh, and I'll say that before I answer the part of, of African, but even on the conversations uh, on vaccines, um, I find that some of the people I know who are the most supportive and you know, are ready to see the world locked up if you don't get vaccinated, I know for some of them, because that would be the way I engage with them at a deeper level, some of them have chronic diseases. They're really what's happening is that they're scared. 
And then, you know, and that's what happens a lot. We don't realize, but a lot of people have, you know, chronic diseases and have their, their, their health compromised and they're just not sharing it widely. So what you would see is people would be very pro vaccine, lock people up, they're selfish, they're this and that. And actually, once you know people at a personal level, what you realize is that, you know, they're scared and no one has actually come to hold them and to say, you're actually going to be okay. There is something for what you have. It is, you, it can be resolved. You know, maybe Western medicine has failed you, but maybe there's some holistic treatment. Not maybe, there are holistic treatments that work. I take people on um, Ayurvedic Panchakarma to India. The groups that I take there are usually people who've tried everything in Western medicine. They're, you know, really uh, desperate and they're looking for something and they discover the whole holistic and they just couldn't believe and it just changed their lives. So I also have a lot of compassion for, um, you know, people who are so... Uh, strongly supporting and ready to actually see the worst things happening to their brothers and sisters, people putting in putting camps and uh, and lock them down in their homes because they're they're just scared and no one no one is coming to comfort them. And when they turn on the TV, they're even more being scared. So people need to just turn off their TV to start with. But connections has has been cut and you know. Anyway, it's, we, we know the systems are, are not easy to dismantle. So, you know, the white, to come back to the white supremacist thing, um, you know, again, for me, these are really easy arguments. Um, I think that the race, the race card is, for me, is like the lowest common denominator. Um, you know, I think the stories are much more complex than that. And every time uh, stories are... Uh, you know, polarized with like a very simple argument. I just, I just think it's a little bit lazy. Um, in Africa, uh, there are different things happening, but um, even right now, I'm in South Africa. I'm even, you know, worried about seeing what's happening in Africa because next thing you know, uh, we'll have a new variant <laughs> that's being created <laughs> because life is too sweet here. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, different countries, you know, Africa is 54, you know, and, and maybe you can count, let's say, 58 countries with, with some of the newer countries. Um, life is very different. You know, some of these measures are just not possible uh, here. If you think of a lot of, of the Western central, uh, the, the least westernized countries, people live in communities. So, I mean, you're going to talk about social distancing. I mean, it's just not possible. In most African cultures, you only exist because of the community. You, you have no existence as existence as an individual, as a matter of fact. There is no such thing as the individual. So how are you going to create social distancing? So that one. Second, in a lot of the countries, most of the economy is informal. So people are not sitting in offices and can do uh, you know, remote work in front of their Zoom. And I mean, this, this is not how people make a living. People are selling stuff on the streets. I mean, if you think of a place like in most of West Africa, whatever you want to buy, you buy at the market. You don't buy at the store. Uh, so people are, are all in the informal economy. So you're going to tell people, okay, now you need to stay home because you're on lockdown. I mean, it's just not even possible. 
So these measures are also, again, you know, very Western. Um, and what I've been observing is that uh, people are not dying like, you know, what people are predicting. Um, and people are hugging, are not social distancing, are partying and, um, yeah. you know, are being together because that's what we're made to be. You know, we're social beings and, and life is, is mostly good. Until the interference is going to to start, because early in the early in the pandemic, they were saying, "Well, Africa is just about to be slammed," partly because of what you were saying, because you know social distancing and lockdowns are impossible there, and people can't afford to wear masks all the time. So here we are, almost two years later, and Africa has still not been slammed. And they keep coming up with one explanation after another, after another to explain that. Um, I don't think any of the explanations are satisfying to me. And now they're promoting mass vaccination in Africa for a disease that has done very, very little damage. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder- I mean, I have a fr- I mean, in Ivory Coast, as a matter of fact, they had to close a lot of the, the special units that uh, at the beginning they built you know, because they thought that the hospitals were going to be crowded, Um, you know, uh, no. And then the second thing as well is that people are very pragmatic um, in in Africa in a lot of places. I mean, I'm talking about Africa as it's one country. It's not one country. I mean, it's very diversified. Um, You know, it's it's different places, different practices, etc. But let me talk about Ivory Coast. I think people are also very pragmatic. We've had we have a history of having all kinds of diseases and things. So people are also very pragmatic about these things. And they also always use in conjunction, you know, the, the, the more holistic, uh, the trend, what we call the tradie practitioners, because that's what people can afford with the Western. So in tradie, traditional medicine, very quickly, people looked at the symptoms. What is it that we have? Let's look at the plants, et cetera. And people were providing um, uh, treatments. Uh, 14 people in my family, including myself, we've had COVID. Uh, We were in France and uh, they just say, okay, go home, take some vitamins and rest. And, uh, you know, my mother is 75 years old and all we're like, okay, whatever, call Abidjan, the doctor, okay, have COVID, send the the prescription, some aunties, send some plants from the, you know, from Abidjan that they have to, you know, kind of try to get into, to, to France. And, and basically everyone was fine. And as a matter of fact, uh, within one week, um, you know, everyone was up and running. My my brother also who had a COVID got his stuff from our doctor in India, you know, so we had all the traditional stuff and, and it was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was really interesting, especially this, this was, um, um, you know, a, a bit over a year ago. Uh, it's really interesting that in France, no treatment, nothing was actually given. And anyone who came out with some treatment with, direction or say, well, you know, let's try that, you know, we're basically, as we know, silence, etc. I mean, in any case, you know, th- this, at this point, what, what I think is that, you know, all the information is out there. What I, what I see is that it's, it's not anymore, you know, I don't want to use the a battle, but okay, for lack of a better word, it's no more a battle of information. Uh, I think people, 
again, choose to close their eyes uh, for various reasons. Uh, it's not that people don't have the information. Uh, it is a lot to, to take in. And, uh, and we also live in an environment where, you know, people want to, to also belong. The, this polarization is also, you know, is also something that can exclude people from society. And most people are not ready for, for that exclusion. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we, we didn't need a pandemic. We've seen things before that were even milder and people would actually acquiesce to things just because they still wanted to be part of, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, I think Africa is going to be become more challenging. I think the next thing, because I mean, this is a global, global agenda um, and, and there's no, you know, we're not talking conspiracy at this point anymore because everything is just out there to, to see. Uh, and, and I see how things are being played out this week, uh, Ghana, I think it was three days ago or four days ago, uh, now you can't enter Ghana without a vaccine. And if you arrive at the airport and you're not vaccinated, they will force vaccinate you. Um, in Kenya, uh, now you, don't, uh, you can't have access to any government uh, service if you're not vaccinated. And, uh, and so, you know, some, some countries are, are already bending. So it's going to, to, to be interesting to, to see what's going to happen. I think the big countries are definitely going to be the first targets, your countries like Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, the main economies and, and you know, countries in the north of Africa, because that's how it's always been. You know, what I share with some of my friends here in Africa, I said, well, I mean, literally, the, there is a, a history of exploitation of you know, from slavery to colonialism to neo-colonialism, it's never stopped. So why is it all of a sudden, you know, as a miracle going to stop? Right. This is what I, what I like, this is why, this is what perplexes me. It's like, what do you think that they have, that the corporate government complex that has exploited Africa for all these years and centuries, all now they're just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. Same thing with African-Americans here who have been like experimented on, forcibly like sterilized uh, and treated as guinea pigs and oppressed in so many ways by this system. And now all of a sudden they're gonna trust it. Like maybe, maybe like just pause for a second here. Um, I think that's, that's the thing is, is people are not thinking anymore. That's you know, and, and Marion Williamson says it also all the time is that, you know, there, there is a crisis of, of, you know, she was saying it in her campaign, as a matter of fact, you know, is that people, we, we just need to be thinking again. And we think we think, but mm -hmm. we're not, you know, we're, we're in a world where the, the charismatic orators are worshipped, uh, but it's not the deepest thinkers. We, we live in, uh, in you know, in, a, in times where charisma uh, is is more important than wisdom. Words like wisdoms, uh, wisdom is a word that you barely ever hear, ever. Wisdom, intuition. It's mm. like they're they're they you know at this trend they will actually disappear. Like some words have disappeared from our language. I was reading about this concept of uh, acedia, but I mean there are words that have that have fully disappeared and and humility. 
yeah, these words, we don't use them anymore. Yeah. The thing is, as they disappear, they don't become parts of the archetypes that we're building anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, this is part of the narrowing of reality that you were actually referring to before when you talked about people's lack of access to holistic alternatives. And you spoke of taking people to India where, where what they had considered to be an incurable condition now can be cured. My wife is a holistic practitioner. Like people come in like literally every day yeah. um, with sometimes th things that, that they've been going to doctors for 10 or 20 years yeah. and like they can be healed. There's like a whole universe. But when people don't know about that universe, when they're locked into a small universe of even concepts like you're talking about, then of course it seems that like if, if the only remedy is a vaccine, of course you're going to accept the vaccine. And of course you're going to reject as crazy and inhumane anybody who would defy that form of progress. Well, but I mean, for me, like there is also something that makes me really uncomfortable in everything that's uh, happening is, you know, our relationship to death. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, that um, you know, people, each time you mention the word death is like, oh, don't mention it. Like you're going to bring back bad luck or so. And, and death is, is a beautiful thing. Is just a beautiful thing as it it's as as his birth, you know. Mm. And so it's really interesting. What fascinates me is that the majority of this world be believes in some kind of religion or spirituality, and and that's probably ninety percent of the population of this planet believes in something. Every single religion and every single spirituality has a, a very profound. Uh, teachings on death and they all say the same thing but we're schizophrenic we we practice these things they make us feel good but then once we're we're actually have to embody them we actually forget really what they mean and so it's really interesting this fear that we have of death and so you die so what in all of the traditions, I mean, even in, in, in Africa, uh, and I've had in this year, actually, in my family alone, I've had like seven people dying, no one from COVID, but people are just, you know, exiting in some ways. And, and it's, it's a celebration. You know, we celebrate the life of the person who has gone. And if you look at whether it's a Jewish tradition, Islamic tradition, they're like old rituals you know, for, for, for that, of course, there is the mourning because the grieving is part of the healing. We don't carry the grief, but there is also an aspect of celebrating. And a lot of people actually have, have just been really deprived of the wisdoms around death because we're in a death denying, we live in a death denying society. And that uh, is, is just really creating, again, in the psyche of people, death has become this thing to fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is, this is the subject of another kind of colonialism that says, like, okay, all of these religions, they believe that your true self is not limited to just this separate individual. And if you accept that, death is very different than if you are what science has told us, which is that you're basically this meat machine 
generating consciousness that is extinguished upon death. But that is the scientific quote unquote view. So part of our civilizing and educating the world means to bring them into this, this true knowledge. And as a byproduct, actually to make them as terrified and phobic of death as the modern society is. So it is like the, the ultimate form of oppression to like rob people, not only of their natural resources, not only of their culture, but of this core spiritual truth and, and fearlessness and, and knowledge that you are more than just this. Yeah. And to, to be honest, I think that's also what I've witnessed in Africa is that a lot of people, because we have a more fatalistic uh, view of life, uh, because also people die, I mean, literally uh, at home, people die every day or whatever. And, and most of the time, we don't even know what people die of. You just know, oh, so-and-so is dead. You call home and so-and-so is dead. No one, I mean, there's no autopsy, whatever. <laughs> and sometimes you actually go to the hospital and you die there because of, uh, you know, whatever mistake mistake the hospital has done. So also, you know, we, we do have uh, a track record of hospitals not being reliable in our countries. You know, a lot of people die at the hospital. So it's not like people are thinking, oh, you know, I'm not well, let me go to the hospital. Like, you know, people are very careful because they're like, we know, I mean, personally, I, 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 I know directly of five people at least that like now I can think, but if I can think of more, you know, if I spend more time, I'll, I'll think of more, but like just now in my awareness of five people I know, including one of my best friends went to the hospital and died. Uh, and, you know, and in and, and Abidjan. And so there is also not that uh, full trust in, you know, what a hospital could get you. And all, also people are just, you know, I, I find, uh, people are much more present. And I'm not talking about the elites because I love to spend time uh, in markets, talking to people, um, you know, my going to, uh, spending lots of time, I don't know, with the driver, the maid or whatever, you know, like just also going to their place and sitting there with the tailor in, in his shop and meeting people and really getting the pulse because, you know, um, that is the reality really of the world. The majority of the world is poor. Uh, and we think that, and very poor, not, not, I'm not talking about middle class, but you travel the world, whether it's in Asia, uh, in, in Africa, the majority of the world is poor and life is very different there. You don't hear these voices because they're silenced, but th there is a full life there. And what I'm hearing there, uh, even here uh, uh, in South Africa, talking with again, you know, the workers or whatever, you know, people don't want to get vaccinated. They don't want to get vaccinated. They want to enjoy what they can because they already are in, with this uh, knowing that they can die anytime because that's what they see in their communities. People just die. They, most people don't live very long uh, in, in Africa. So, you know, they're not so attached to what I have to lose because they already don't have so much. I think, again, it's a very privileged, um, you know, kind of not problem, but thinking that, oh, I want to preserve my life by any cost, even if it means locking the whole world 
world and and imprisoning people and putting people into camp because that suits me. Uh, I think people have to go and 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 sit, um, you know, more and have these conversations with people who have less. And we don't do enough of that. We we look from far. You know, we're like, mm. oh, I th- we have solutions for them. But I mean, have you have you gone and actually sit down with them? You know, don't you think that they have wisdom? They know, but no, because you have financial power. You know, and I've been in Davos and World Economic Forum. I've attended these meetings. You know, I was, um, you know, I was running a half a billion dollars business. So you know, I, I I'm familiar with all these environments and. My clients were governments and also, you know, I'm very familiar with these environments. They're very disconnected from reality is that every, every, every person is a number. They see the world as, as uh, KPIs and metrics mm-hmm. and they don't see people anymore. And so, um, so these things are, are you know, we, we, you just need to go and sit down. It's not because you do your one speech, your one rally, you speak with some representative of the civil society that you actually know really what's going on. Have you gone and sat there? You know, have mm-hmm. you slept for a week, you know, in a house in Sudan with people and just seeing what's their daily life or wherever and, and that. And so you can't give solutions to people when you actually don't know what are their problems. Yeah. When you do that, you get information that does not, that's not included in metrics. When when you're sitting in somebody's kitchen, you know, when you're a guest at their house, when you're walking in the market with them, you get all kinds of information. And And people are disconnected. I'll give you an example of of how, you know, for people who won't be so familiar, and maybe this example will be uh, uh, very vivid. Uh, I remember when uh, a, a big uh, international um, uh, retail store reached out to me and said, Swati, you want to uh, retail your, your teas, uh, but the, the price is too high. And so I, I told them, I said, well, you know, this is the price. Um, you know, we operate on that basis where everyone benefits in, in the chain. So that's the price. And the response from the buyer, and it's very big company and we're small and so you know with that power the buyer tells me well we're also in the tea industry we also have our tea range so we understand uh the the whole supply chain of the tea we understand the prices and so on and so i asked i said well you know let me say one thing you are looking at this from a a target so basically as a buyer you have a target of margin and so maybe the margin that you need to make is 50%. And if, the, the, if you're not making this target, now you're negotiating with me so you can get that. But what you're seeing as the 1% change actually translates in someone in a tea plantation in Africa for a year that cannot send their child to school. Have you ever, and I asked the buyer, have you, you know the metrics, but have you ever been in a, have you ever spoken with a tea farmer? Have you ever been in the house of a tea farmer? Have you ever spent time with a tea farmer, their family, and understand how their life works? And he, he remained blank. And I said, so this is the price and I'm ready not to sell to your shop, but this is how we operate. So eventually they, bought, they, they got my teas. And the buyer, the funny story is the buyer left the company and wrote me an email and said, Swati, if you are in need of a buyer, I would love to work for you. Hmm. And so 
again, why I'm sharing that is that people, we need to bring back and, and reconnect people because all of a sudden this buyer realized, oh, wow, indeed, I'm talking about metrics and I haven't done that. And, and I think there is power in, in connection and we, we need to get out of our screens and we need to, to go and find and meet those people who are not part of our circles. We have to look around, who are the 10 people around me? If they all look the same, there is a problem. Well, it's hard to do that if you're in lockdown. And, well, I mean, there are always, yeah. always ways. I, I find, you know, for me is that, again, you know, to, to something you, you often also speak about is, is stories. What is the story that you're telling yourself? And so my story is that human connection is, is our life force. Mm -hmm. And uh, that experience is important. And I'll tell you, when I had COVID, um, I didn't, I, I, I was not like, oh, uh, who gave me COVID? I have a friend who was saying that, you know, this is ir uh, irresponsible people because of their irresponsible action. Now I have COVID and la la. And as a matter of fact, when I got COVID, I was so grateful, so grateful because the one thing, my prayer every day, I tell God, I never want to be disconnected from human experience ever, ever. I want to feel it. I want to experience it. So if people have COVID, let me have COVID because this is part of the human experience. And so I know how it feels. I was drained. I was exhausted. I could barely move. I mean, whatever. But we're all in this together. There's no me and them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so how, we, how, we remain, how do we remain connected to human experience? So we remain connected to one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a hint of that in the word pandemic, really. It means all. It means mm. something that, you know, circulates among all, pan. So and, and see, this pandemic, for me, you know, I'm grateful. I have to say, you know, I had the, the at the very beginning, um, not very beginning, because I was in a little bit, not in, in a bubble. Yes, I could say in a bubble because my I, I didn't experience any lockdown. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever experienced, I haven't experienced lockdown <laughs> at all. Wherever I've been in Asia, <laughs> in Africa, in Middle East, wherever I've just, you know, been very lucky in that way. But I remember when I, I, after several months, when I landed in Paris and wow, I experienced this new world, you know, after a few months, I, like the world had changed and I got really angry and I, and I knew already the vaccines were coming up and all of this. And so I was really angry and I literally sat with myself and I was like, sweaty, you can't be angry because that's not the experience. So, you know, just sit with yourself and how do you transform that and you know then of course a lot of of learnings from that uh, came but what i find is that we're not looking at really all these opportunities you know we we, we were also and we are still in a crisis of care people don't care really for one another and i'm not talking about the easy or oh, you're selfish you're not vaccinated because actually sometimes that same person who's saying that would be in traffic jam and screaming their lungs out because the person in front is not moving fast enough um so are, are we really really caring and i feel that um the pandemic is actually an opportunity also 
to, for everyone to experience what some of us have been experiencing and some are still experiencing because while this is happening, there are still countries that, that are, you know, are in war. Um, yeah. I was just, before speaking with you, I was just reading about um, uh, uh, North Korea, where now they're not allowed to laugh for, for, um, for, I think it's for 11 or 14 days because they're mourning. Uh, it's the anniversary of the mourning of the father mm -hmm. <laughs> of the leader. So, yeah. you know, so people have been experiencing these autocratic freedom, uh, limiting and and worst things for a long time and it's just that the whole world now is experiencing it and you would want people to now uh, instead of again staying at the surface of just the COVID but what is this teaching us about maybe what some of our brothers and sisters um, in other parts of the world, in other communities have been experiencing you know we don't yeah. need to go so far I mean, To give one example, like I think something like 30,000 people um, die of hunger every day. Like more people in the pandemic, way more people have died of hunger than of COVID. But yeah. we've we've not turned society inside out to stop that. Yeah. And actually the changes needed to end world hunger would be much less than the changes that have been implemented under COVID. Yeah. But for some reason, that has not been a priority. Yeah. And it's just something I think about a lot because this is like even a bigger conversation. You can talk about vaccines, no vaccines, mandates, lockdowns, masks, all these things. But when you engage in that conversation, part of what you're doing is saying, this is the most important conversation to have. Sure. But like, what are you not seeing in the human condition when you narrow the conversation to that and put it at front and center? Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is it is a hijacking of, of the narrative. And again, you know, this is something uh, the world has been experiencing. You know, I often say to to uh, my friends who chose to incarnate as with a white skin is that, you know, the majority of the world is actually not white. And so when you talk about minority, it's actually already a false narrative because the majority of the world is actually non non white skin. Uh, so the minority is, is really, uh, um, you know, white-skinned people. You know, we're, as, as we see, it's, it's just been hijacked. So there has been a, a hijacking of what the world is, and the world is diverse. The world is non-white. Uh, the world is actually mostly spiritual. Um, I, I see that, you know, a lot in Bali, I've had been having this conversation with, with my, my friends uh, coming from, you know, Western countries. And I said, you know, in these places, you actually see mostly, uh, you know, white people. You don't really see, you know, people, brown people, because actually most of the world is, is spiritual. I mean, you spend your time wherever you go. You go in South America, in Africa, in Asia. People have not lost their spirituality. You know, this is the center of their life. Like it is the most important thing. As a matter of fact, you know, the whole operating system of, of the majority of the world, again, is, is spiritual. And so when we're even talking about the spiritual awakening, 
you know, rising of consciousness. I mean, who are we talking about? Uh, we're not talking about the world because the majority of the world is already operating in with that knowing that we're spiritual beings. It's just a, a minority. And again, that is a hijacking of the narrative. So mm -hmm. there has been a hijacking of, of the story of the world to create a one story. And what's happening, because it's a good story, even people who are not experiencing sometimes this and can see, okay, this is not my story, believe it. Um, and this is something, again, you know, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not something people talk a lot about, but, you know, we'll, I'll, we'll talk about it. But um, even in Africa, where people become more westernized, what I do find is that um, basically what they use is more dark forms of spirituality. Uh, it's not that they stop being spiritual, but I mm. mean, for, again, growing up in Ivory Coast, you know, it's and in West Africa in general. I mean, if you talk about dark magic, voodoo, I mean, this is our everyday life. So, you know, like when people people say, oh, this conspiracy theories, you know, those people doing rituals, it's crazy. These are stories. I'm like, well, I mean, again, in the majority of the world, because that's not in Africa, you know, I live in Indonesia, it is every day there, you know, people do exorcism, remove, uh, you know, you go and sit mm -hmm. at the Balian again in the, in the, in, in the village, sit with people. I live in a community there of Balinese. So, I mean, these are things every day, same in India. Uh, and in, same in South America. So in the majority of the world, these things are even open. I think they happen yeah. in the West too. It's just that people want to pretend that it's not happening mm. because I can tell you, I was there in, you know, when I was, uh, uh, some of the years I was working in Paris, I remember, I, you know, one of my cousins brought me to this uh, Mahabu from Mali because she's in politics and whatever. She's like, oh, you know, I know this guy. Uh, let's go because he's also the marabou of some of the presidents or whatever. And I went there and indeed the guy has like pictures. This is like some obscure, you know, marabou <laughs> from Mali, mm -hmm. but is there. And, and I see it every day. You know, we're again, you know, living in, in, in Africa and being in that environment, in these communities, we know what's going on. You know, I see the, the wealth the westerners also going to call having their guru uh, not it's not mm -hmm. a guru it's, it's literally the you know marabou or i don't know how you would mm -hmm. call it uh in english but you know these guys are around you know yeah. I, I mean if you're if you get close if you get a little bit close i i'm pretty sure that any you know, big CEO, you know, or important person, you know, not so far has uh, someone who's, you know, coming from <laughs> more indigenous nations and sometimes not, you know, who's the, who's, you know, the, the sorcerer uh, in a way. And so people have not left it. And I, and I see it in, 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 um, in my own country, you know, I mean, we see, we see sacrifices on the streets every day. You know, like, uh, and, and as a matter of fact, we live with it. So you're driving to school and in the middle of, you know, the roundabout, there is like some dead, um, you know, uh, hand with like, I don't know, some hair, whatever, some kind of, of voodoo, you mm -hmm. know, ritual just there. And people just, you know, drive around <laughs> and that's yeah. part of everyday life. 
So what, what, what I mean is that, uh, and, and I know as well for a fact that people who have become wealthier, more westernized are still using these practices, but as means of staying in power, um, you know, protecting themselves, etc. So mm-hmm. it's not that they have left because I think everyone on this planet has a real understanding that, you know, this reality is spiritual. And even if we claim otherwise, because those same people who sometimes are very hardcore science, etc. But then, you know, oh, they have a heartbreak. Oh, do you know someone I can go like a, uh, mm-hmm. who can read and see what's going on? So then, you know, you, it means that you believe yeah. that there is something else. I mean, I think for, for everybody, it's not that deeply buried that, you know, because it's really core to be human. Yeah. There is a dark side of it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, none, none. And mm-hmm. again, as a Western, people who grew up in Western Africa, these are not so-and-so said. This is not, I didn't need to wait for YouTube to see those sacrifices. These are happening in our communities. We know. So that, so like people um, in West Africa and other places you've been, you think that they would be a lot more accepting of some of these um, narratives about a, a human trafficking elite that does satanic sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem so far-fetched for people who are witnessing yeah, but, this kind of... Yeah, it's for us, it's not even far-fetched. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have, a, I have a, a friend in Nigeria a couple of years ago was telling me how they discovered a human factory, you know, where basically they have these young girls having babies. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and she works in gender violence. So, I mean, these are not, this, you know, again... Because we live in a very com- community, again, that's the advantage of, of Africa, is that we are still very much community-based. So the information is not coming from YouTube. <laughs> you know, the information yeah. is coming from so-and-so. And this is why, I, again, you know, for us, which was really interesting and was a part of also frustration when I was a teenager, is that when you read these stories about people in in Africa. You're like, but this is not true. We know this person. You know, we know people. They're not like, people are not far from each other. Mm -hmm. Like this person went to school with my mom, with my aunt. This one, I go to school with their children. I was at their house yesterday. You know, all, and the communities are small. So we all know each other. We know where people are from. We know what's the story of their family. You know, we have a tradition of the griots. The griots, they carry the, the, the family tradition. So, mm-hmm. so we know where people are from. And if, for example, I was to bring you, Charles, at my house, the first thing people would, would ask, of course, you know, they would know maybe you're American, but let's say where someone, they would want to know who are your parents? Yeah. Who are your parents? Where do you come from? Da, 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 da. You know, and so that's, that's how we operate is that we always put people in the context. People are not separated from one another. So mm-hmm. these stories, you know, again, is for us is not far-fetched because there's no need to go on social media. You know, I, I know people who died from, and I'm not saying it's the majority, but there, there have been case of, cases of people dying from the vaccine. You know, this is not something I, I didn't even need to go on Twitter or so to, to read it. You know, my, my friend is a doctor, is at the hospital. So, you know, okay, what's going on? He's sitting in my house. 
we're chatting. Okay, with this COVID, you're a doctor. Tell me, what is happening? What's the story? Oh. And then you speak with your other friend who's also the doctor who's working there. And you're asking, okay, what's happening? This is how we operate. And we're all sitting together and you get the information there. You're not going to YouTube and so to find out. And so for us, it's not far-fetched. It's not far-fetched. Right. Well, I was talking about stories about you know, world leaders who aren't part of your community. What I'm saying is if, if you're seeing this kind of whatever you call it, sorcery or, or you know, happening, then it would be easy to accept that, oh, maybe it's happening yes. in the halls of power too. Yes. That's, that's what I meant. Yeah. 100%. For us, it's not even, you know, it's not even a conspiracy. It's like, oh, they're just doing the same as our leaders here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if that's the note I want to end on, but um, maybe is there is there is there something just like maybe that you want to just bring um, to bring us to a close here, like some something that you would really like to transmit to people? Yeah, I would say, you know, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed. Even this, this story, sometimes people feel overwhelmed about, you know, things about dark magic and, you know, let's say the, the darkest side of the world. And what I would say is that there's just so much uh, going on. You know, the world is a really complex, a complex weaving of so many things. And I, and I, and I think we really need to see the beauty in all of it. Uh, and there's no... Um, there's no rejection of anything. Uh, we just have to, to dive into all of it. And, and in diving, that's where you, you see the beauty or even get the understanding of it. And, and that brings more just compassion for everything. And, and that's what I would call people to do is just embrace it and have that spiritual discipline of rejecting anything that polarizes. Hmm. Um, that's actually the last thing I want to suggest as a practice um, what I find is a very powerful practice is anytime something triggers me, I add um, like me. So, for example, why do people want to control? This frustrates me. Uh, and then I'm thinking, like me, I'm doing that. Okay. And, and, and that is the beginning of me exploring what in me is mm -hmm. looking to control. And so I find it's very good practice. Why are people lying? I don't understand all these lies, you know, in the media, just like me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Beautiful. Where, where, where am I lying? Is it mm -hmm. something that I'm lying about myself, who I am in my life? It may be not lying to other people. It, it may be just lying. It's the same energy. It's the energy of lie. So all these energies that are out there, they're within ourselves, including the control. And I was telling that to a friend. I said, we are constantly, you, you're, you're trying to organize holidays or meeting with me in two months. I have absolutely no clue. And that is frustrating you. This is an energy of control. Mm -hmm. So if, if you were in an energy of surrender, uh, you'll see. So the same control that is annoying you at a global stage, you're actually applying in your life. So what about if there was less control in things? in your schedule, in the holidays, in the little things, because it's that same energy. And so that sentence, just like me, and then you start there and you go and explore where just like you, it is inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. That's a great, a great message to, to think about and practice. Well, thank you for, for taking the time, Swati. It was really great to uh, reconnect and, uh, 
I suppose I'll put links or whatever in the description, but is there anything you want to point people's attention to your tea company or like anything, any project or anything? No, nothing in particular. Um, you can go to my Instagram, swadi underscore Martin or swadi.com. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm very grateful for these conversations. And Charles, thank you so, so much for everything you're putting in the world out there. Um, yeah, really blessings. And please continue. Please. Thanks. I will do that. <laughs> this has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.